Good evening, it's six o'clock and you're listening to Newswire. I'm Aoife O'Brien and I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ginny Keegan and Corinza Rock. On today's show, DCU student Emily Larkin has been elected onto the Young Fine Gael National Executive Panel. The USI have launched a mental health text line. We will be taking a look at the Big Start campaign by SIP2, which is looking for better pay for early childhood education students. DCU students have teamed up with Inner City Helping Homeless for a Christmas clothes drive. A bakery on Pierce Street have said they won't sell takeaway coffees on Mondays to customers who don't have a keep cup. And post-primary students in Scaries are going to be left with nowhere to go to school in September, with Scaries Community College and schools in surrounding towns way over capacity. Over the weekend, DCU student Emily Larkin was appointed onto the National Executive of Young Fine Gael. In a tweet, Emily said, I'm completely shocked, humbled and blown away by the support I've received over the last few weeks. Thank you so much to everyone who voted for me and endorsing me as your voice on the National Executive. Thank you. Young Fine Gael is the young wing of the political party Fine Gael and welcomes members between the ages of 15 to 35. Young Fine Gael embodies the same values as the Fine Gael party does and allows the independence of the views of the younger people. The National Executive is a panel of young people who are responsible for the management, government, control and administration of the organisation. The National Executive is elected at a national conference which, which takes place every 15 to 22 months. The 30th National Executive took place over the weekend where the panel was elected. DCU Young Fine Gael said in a tweet... DCU Young Fine Gael would like to congratulate our very own Emma Larkin on be- Emily Larkin on being elected to the National Executive Panel, a fantastic and hardworking individual who we know will do great stuff in the future. I asked Emily how did she get into politics, about her campaign to get on to the National Executive and also her hopes with- while being on this panel. So I became interested in YFG when a friend told me about it, um, but I was originally interested in politics when I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and a physical disability a few years ago, when I saw, you know, firsthand the public health service and the problems that it really continues to face. So I really wanted to affect positive change. So that's why I joined Young for the Gale, as I firmly believe in the values that it holds. So I joined a little over a year ago during first year in college here in DCU, but I have loved it ever since I joined. Um, it was actually really interesting running for the National Executive. It was stressful at times with assignments and other things going on, but I really, really enjoyed it, going up and down the country, meeting members and giving speeches about what I'm passionate on. Um, my campaign was based on four really key issues, health and disability, education of Zanguelga, women in politics and climate change. And I campaigned through my speeches, meeting and chatting with members and asking them for their vote at conference. And hopefully there are many things I would love to achieve on the National Executive of Young Finnegal. So one of the big ones was getting more women involved in politics, which is something I really, really believe in and that should happen. Increasing membership, better public transport, pushing and publishing an action plan on climate change and actually implementing it, uh, breaking barriers to education and making it more accessible. Um, as a primary school teacher, I really, really believe this is something that we need to do. And, of course, the health service getting numbers down on waiting lists and trolley. The Union of Students in Ireland last week launched a mental health text line for students that aims to connect texters with a volunteer who has been trained to listen, reassure and guide people who are suffering with their mental health. 
The service could help students with urgent issues such as suicidal thoughts, abuse or assault, self-harm, bullying or relationship breakdown. The decision to launch this service comes after the USI published a study called the National Report on Student Mental Health in Third Level Education. The study found that just under a third of students who participated had received a formal diagnosis of their mental health. Most of these students received a diagnosis of depression at 74% and anxiety at 73.5%. I spoke to Craig McHugh, USI VP for the Dublin region, about the launch of the text line, how it will work and why it is a valuable resource for students. So could you just kind of give me a brief explanation, I guess, of how the text line is going to work? Yeah, so um, essentially <coughs> students can uh, text USI to uh, the letters USI to 86 280 and that's the beginning of the conversation. Um, and basically this, what service can do can help with suicidal thoughts, um, abuse or assault, um, bullying, race to breakdown, self-harm. Um, it's available 24-7 um, and standard text message rates apply. Um, but most networks, I suppose, it's free of charge. Um, and then at the other end of the phone, it's trained volunteers, um, so they'll be able to um, assist um, I suppose, with the issues that students are, are texting in. Okay, and did the USI partner with a company to launch this, or who are the volunteers that are on the other end of the phone? So the volunteers um, are, are students that are fully trained, um, uh, and, well, they're students and young people that are fully trained, um, to, to take these issues, um, and it is it is done in partnership um, with another another company, but obviously no information uh, would be would be shared. And with the volunteers, what sort of training do they receive, and could anyone become a volunteer for this program? Well, I suppose anyone that would have the kind of skill capacity uh, could embark on becoming um, a volunteer, but it is quite a rigorous process. Um, to do so, uh, the details of which I probably just couldn't get into right now at the moment, but um, it is obviously the well-trained, well-thought-out um, training capacity. Okay, and how many volunteers would you have on staff for this at the minute? Uh, I couldn't give you a direct uh, number on that, as soon as we've only um, launched, um, so I couldn't actually give you the direct number. I can find that number out for you if you like, but I mean, the, the main thing to, to obviously get is that these aren't just students sitting on a laptop coming up with any idea um, of what to say back. They're training confidentiality. They have to sign off, you know, disclosure agreements, whatnot. So none of this stuff would obviously, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, they're all fully trained. Do you know what I mean? And does it work kind of on a rota basis where one student or a couple of a number of, like, volunteers might be on call on a given night that you wouldn't be on call all of the time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is done in shifts. Um, so you know these people kind of can choose when when they're when they're comfortable working and look if they're not themselves if they're not feeling up to the job obviously then they're not encouraged to, to do the job and uh, so this isn't the case that people are on twenty four hours a day seven days a week and um, this is very much so managed so it's with the workers uh, the, well the volunteers mental health in mind too because I think obviously you can't take care of others unless you're taking care of yourself absolutely. Um, would you have any idea of how many students might have availed of the service in the last week since it was launched? No, I couldn't give you a figure on that, no. Okay. <laughs> and in terms of the kind of conversation that has started, could counselling 
be offered out of it as counselling, something that the USI offers, or would it be that one of the volunteers would recommend that they search elsewhere if they thought they needed counselling? Yeah, so they would obviously, if the red flags are raised, we would definitely obviously encourage students to uh, go on to professional counselling. These uh, people at the other end of the phone are not, um, I suppose, you know, counsellors with, with, with master's degrees, uh, so they need to be sent to professional people. It's not something that USI probably would have the capacity to do at the moment. Um, obviously, we'd obviously love to look into feasibilities of these kind of things, but not um, that's not where we're, we're looking at going in the moment, at the moment. So obviously DCU last year kind of launched a sort of somewhat similar 24-hour service where you can send a text and they will like arrange for counselling to be organised. Do you think that something like this is a step up for it? Is it offering something that DCU wasn't offering? Um, I don't think we're filling in any uh, gaps. I think we're just providing a, a national text line not to kind of fill in the gaps of any particular institution. Um, so, yeah, so I suppose this is there to, to assist on a national level. So it wasn't, I suppose, to fill in the gaps of, of any particular institution, if that's what you're getting at. Okay. And obviously, I mean, the figures that you kind of have listed in your press release, the kind of, it seems that it came off the back of, are quite stark in how many people are saying they're suffering with mental health issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Often in terms of that sort of thing, someone might feel comfortable to take it on a survey to say, yeah, I've struggled with it, but maybe won't think that their struggle warrants the sort of care that someone else that someone else might, so they mightn't maybe contact the text line because they think, oh, well, somebody else needs it more, or it's not a big enough deal. How would you kind of encourage people or what would you say to these people, kind of, who are feeling like, oh, my problem isn't big enough? Well, I suppose no problem is uh, is is too big or too small um, to, to share. Um, I think that's the most important message out there. If you are struggling, that you should reach out and that that's what this text line is for. Um, and if people are responding to surveys around mental health, like the one we published there at the end of the summer, um, and are saying that they are struggling, if anyone responded to that, obviously, and said they are struggling and, and, and hasn't reached out, we'd obviously encourage them to reach out. But obviously, you know, we can't. Um, it's very hard to, on a, on a very individual level, get out and make sure that they are reaching out. Um, but all we can do really is encourage them and try and change the culture to say, look, um, you know, it's okay to not be okay as, as the line has gone for many years. But more so, <clears throat> it's very much so okay if you're not okay to reach out and we would encourage people to do so. Um, so, yeah. Um, is this, has this campaign been launched kind of in conjunction with anything, anything else as part of the USI? Is it part of like a bigger picture that you're kind of working with? Well, we are currently in the middle of our research campaign and we'll be launching our de-stress campaign as well um, soon enough, um, which is also about really exam stress. Uh, recharge is more so about you know, mental health and recharging yourself. It's all kind of in, the, in the, the context of USI working on mental health issues. Um, and we're obviously very happy to be able to develop the capacity to do something like this. Um, it's not in the context of a singular campaign, but obviously it's in the context of a number of campaigns that we are working as part of our mental health strategy. Up next, we'll be taking a look at the Big Star campaign by SIP2. Industrial, professional and technical union, also known as SIP2, have launched a campaign called the Big Start, which aims to unionise early childhood educators and providers. The sector has faced increasing demand and not enough pay for its workers. According to SIP2, childcare in Ireland is one of the highest in Europe, with an average of over €750 Euro per child per month, and that most early child educators are earning less than the minimum living wage of €12.30 an hour. 
The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development have recommended that spending on early years education be increased by 1%. This will ensure decent pay, sustainable services and high quality for children. I also spoke to Greg McHugh, the Vice President for the Dublin Region at the Union of Students Ireland, about this campaign from a student's perspective. The whole point of this campaign is to unionise anyone in the early years sector because at the moment paying conditions for them um, isn't exactly where it should be. So there is room to perhaps uh, improve the working conditions of people in this sector by unionising them. Uh, we do need a certain quota uh, of students um, and of, of, of workers in general in the sector in order to be able to uh, unionise and actually put to the table of the Department of Children and Youth Affairs better pay and conditions uh, for them. At the end of the day, this is um, the youngest people uh, in our society, the littlest of little ones, and they should be taking care of people that are paid properly. And do you find that there is actually a lack of students going into this sector because of the bad job prospects? I think there's a massive disincentive um, into going into this sector because of the pay, but I think we still have an incredible uh, great group of people out there, just like I suppose when it comes to going into nursing and when the paying conditions aren't brilliant, uh, there's still some people that are absolutely so strong and brave they decide to go in. I spoke to Sersha, a student studying early childhood education in Portobello, about the need for this campaign. How do you feel knowing that this is the kind of industry you're going to be going into and that you might not be getting paid the right amount? It's just really tricky. Like for ages, I definitely did want to be a child like a practitioner in the early years. But now I'm like, there's no way to make a living off that. Um, Early Childhood Ireland came out and said that the median pay for practitioners was just over 12 grand a year and I mean that's you can't like you can't make a living off that at all for like rent car bills anything so now it's like what do you do with your degree like I want to do a master's and then I want to go abroad to maybe like Qatar or the United Arab Emirates or somewhere like that because I know they value their educators much more than Ireland do. And I know Ireland don't see early childhood practitioners as being as important as primary school teachers, but like we really are because it's a transition and we teach them the core educational principles that they need before they go into primary school. Ashling and Veronica are owners of a preschool in North Dublin. It's another thing that sort of, instead of recognising us as professionals, we're, we're really looking at, looking at us as childcare workers. Why are we, because we're being paid by the Department of Education through the ECC scheme, why are we not recognised as teachers? Why are we not part of the, the National Teachers Union? Why is our membership not going there? Where we would have a massive stronghold and we would have massive influence regarding policy change. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we just don't. But what I'm trying to say is if we were part of the teachers' union, mm-hmm. we would then fall in line with all of the stuff that the teachers um, have um, on board. And, and to me, that just seems like a very logical step for the government to take. They're still needing more members, as far as I can see, in order to be a bona fide group. But if we were to be part of a bigger thing, which is primary school uh, unions, teachers' unions... The campaign has received a lot of attention through social media and Minister for Children and Youth Affairs Catherine Sapone has also called for the early years sector to join a union and continue to campaign for fairer pay. A Dublin homeless charity is set to bring back its annual Christmas appeal for families in need but this year it's a bit different. Following on from its successful Phil a Lewis tram, inner city helping homeless will hold their Phil a Christmas truck appeal in Mount Joy Square. 
This event will take place on Thursday, December 12th from 7am through to 7pm. The public are being urged to donate a shoe box and warm clothes and there will be special gifts on the day for those affected by homelessness, including breakfast, lunch, dinner, pizza, Santa's Grotto, haircuts, snacks and other festive surprises. Anya O'Boyle spoke to a representative from Inner City Helping Homeless to find out why donations are so important and how people can get involved. Christmas isn't always the most wonderful time of the year, particularly for those living in homelessness. I spoke with Brian McLaughlin about the work of the Inner City Helping Homeless Charity during this festive season. We do clothes orders for people. We do food parcels, you know, groceries, non-perishable groceries for families as part of a European fee grant that we have in a partnership with Food Cloud. So on top of that then, we'll, over the Christmas period, we'll also be doing our annual shoebox appeal this morning at the moment. And we hope to provide as many shoeboxes to anyone that's in emergency accommodation across the across the city and, and further out than that as well. Uh, we also have our biggest event of the year taking place on Thursday the twelfth of December as part of the shoebox appeal. Uh, that's the fill a Christmas truck okay. event. It's taking place in Mountjoy Square Park from seven a.m. to seven p.m. on Thursday the twelfth, and we'll be providing breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the homeless. We'll have pizzas, popcorn, candy floss, um, a Santa's grotto haircuts so we've a lot going on between now and Christmas Mm -hmm. are people kind of creating these shoeboxes then what kind of stuff are you looking for to go in them yeah so people are doing it so individuals are doing it companies are doing it schools are doing it you know local community groups are doing it so we would ask people to pack the likes of maybe uh, underwear and socks a hat scarf gloves uh, a Christmas card if if, if it's like maybe a, a small voucher for the likes of Eason's or a coffee shop or somewhere to get food mm-hmm. so that'll be the basic things that people will put in they put in the, the toiletries then as well like maybe a toothbrush toothpaste roll on deodorant you know wipes things like that uh, for children we would also say you know you could maybe add in a small toy or a voucher for Smiths or something like that okay and here in DCU I know there's um, a collaboration going on where there's a clothes drive and is it kind of important for you guys to get donations of clothing for the homeless community? It's absolutely essential to us on yeah, because we, we're consistently getting orders at our door like we're, we're doing orders every single day for people so we ask people just to kind of clear out the wardrobe you know what some people have in their wardrobes that's in great conditions and they don't wear anymore so the likes of jackets, coats, hoodies, jumpers, tops, uh, tracksuits, jeans, um, that type of stuff so you know mm-hmm. we are as I say we're consistently giving out orders at the doors you know seven days a week so to have people donate clothes to us is massive to us because it means that we can help them more people that need it when they need it the most okay and um I suppose as a charity dealing with homelessness do you kind of view this as the peak of the homelessness crisis in Ireland at the moment or do you no, think that it's going to no, worsen? We're, we're the, where we are now is the worst we've ever been in the history of the state. Okay. But we're not going to get, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. It's going to continue to escalate. Um, we will see there's an annual decline or slight decline over the Christmas period where when the January homeless figures come out, it looks like there's a decline for the previous months. But the reason behind that is a lot of people that have to declare themselves as homeless don't want to do it over the Christmas period so they might stay with family or friends particularly if they have children and then come January they will go and register as homeless so you'll see it spike back up again come February and March but that's an annual thing so mm-hmm. I suppose what I would say to people is don't don't get confused by the fact that there might be a slight decline over that period because it's a standard thing every single year um, as long as the government persists in refusing to build public housing on the scale that's required and controlling rents in the way that's required we're not going to see any Despite government investment in homeless services, 
it simply isn't enough to help the 10,000 people currently living on the streets and in temporary emergency accommodation. Anya O'Boyle, reporting for Newswire. Okay, so, I mean, there was some interesting pieces there from Anya to do with this drive for inner city helping homeless. Obviously, we have the clothes collection here in DCU. How successful do you think these sort of projects are? I'd say they are uh, pretty successful. I know for myself, when I was in secondary school and in primary school, we had these sort of drives and they always had a pretty good turnout. Now, whether that was from the students or from the parents of the students, I'm not quite sure. But I think, especially now in in recent times, when homelessness has become such a topical uh, discussion thing, that um, people are more aware of the homeless and therefore more willing to do work, seeing as the government aren't really doing a whole lot, uh, or not really pulling their weight as much as they should be. So I think a lot of people do feel more civic than they would have in previous years because it's so kind of... Uh, in the public sphere at the moment. So I think they are quite successful from what I've seen. Uh, Even here at DCU, the gift giving tree that we do every year where somebody um, basically buys a gift and uh, puts a label on it for a certain either a little boy or girl with something in it and the age. And even that you can see there's already presents appearing under the tree there. So I think it is quite a successful campaign, all of them altogether. Yeah, I think the same. I think also that there's no reason why any student shouldn't give something to the homeless. Like if you go into pennies, a pair of pyjamas costs less than 10 euros and like that could really impact someone's life who is homeless, who can't afford pyjamas. So I know definitely I would and a lot of my friends as well would donate to charities like these. One thing with it is like obviously kind of when we were doing research for the show this week, we kind of found that Christmas time and Christmas expenses were really skyrocketing back up to almost like Celtic tiger times. With people having more money to spend on presents for themselves and for their own families, do you think will the amount that they're given to charity increase? Or do we kind of get more greedy as kind of things start to come back and we're like, well, I've been without for so long. Do you think will it actually increase people's kind of willingness I definitely hope so. I mean, you'd really hope that that would, if people have more disposable income, that they're more likely to give. And I I, I want to think that at Christmas especially they would because, um, yeah, okay, you can buy a few more extra bits for your family or for yourself. But I think, um, again, because it's been so talked about, people are so much more aware of it. And therefore, I think people who have the money are giving to it. Now, if everyone gave that little bit extra, sure, that would be amazing. But obviously... Some people still aren't in the position and we still have a long way to go for everyone to do that. But um, I hope that people wouldn't be getting more greedy. But then, as, as, as you said, the figures for Black Friday, even this weekend or for Christmas, are already estimated to be absolutely huge, bigger than they have been in years. So I'd be very curious to see as to after Christmas what the charities will come out with as in how much has been donated. And I really hope that people would be a bit more willing to give money and... Uh, maybe even time to spend more time actually you know people who help out and volunteer and um, they always go up at Christmas as well so I hope more people are willing to do that despite having a bit more money than usual. I think people will purely because of what's been in the media about homelessness in the past year or so like you see so many people on the streets um, outside shops literally just with a sleeping bag like how could someone's heart not break for them so I feel like p- passing people on the street seeing it on the news hearing about it on the radio people this year should be more likely to donate money because not everyone's as fortunate to have a home to have hot food on the table so I really hope people do yeah 
It definitely has to be really difficult, though, in that, like, we have the Giving Tree here. I know there's always smaller kind of collections in, like, rural areas around the country kind of based for a specific geographic area where they'll be kind of targeting getting gifts for young children. And obviously these kids are probably still going to school and hearing all their friends and what they're asking for off Santa Claus and they're asking for this, that and the other. And while this child might get a gift at Christmas, it might not necessarily be what they were hoping for. And it definitely has to be an extremely traumatic situation for parents, despite the fact that they are maybe able to give this little gift. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I'd say for any child, like you, you're not going to forget that easily, especially, as you said, if you're going to school and all, everyone around you is talking about all the expensive things they're going to get. Um, it definitely it will be tricky for parents, but I think even things like the gift giving tree or even having something like this where they have Santa's Grotto, I mean, how often do they get a chance to meet Santa Claus, you know, in any normal setting that they would be in, you know? So um, it is lovely that they do things like 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 uh, inner, city helping, inner City Helping Homeless will do things like that because it is kind of to make the kids feel as normal as possible because, God, they don't really feel normal any other time of the year, you know? Yeah, 100%. And I mean... There are there are things that definitely can really benefit, like getting someone a warm jacket, warm pyjamas, as we said, things like that. They can never really go astray, one can hope. So up next, our reporter Aoife McMahon is going to be looking at an exciting new climate-friendly initiative launched by a bakery in Dublin city centre. Bread 41, a cafe on Pierce Street, have announced that every Monday they will no longer sell takeaway coffee to people unless they have a keep cup. The owner of the cafe, Owen Klusky, hopes to start doing this seven days a week by the end of February 2020. Klusky said his cafe uses roughly 200 non-reusable cups a day, so by starting to refuse to sell people coffee in paper cups on Mondays, they will reduce the amount of cups they use a year by 9,600. Klusky said he hasn't seen any drop in sales and that this week only four customers complained about being refused coffee. I asked DCU students what they thought of the idea and if it would be feasible to do something similar on our campus. I think it's a good idea, but very difficult to implement because I think everybody would just give out about it and not want to actually buy their own. But I do think like it would be the best option for like sustainable campus type thing. Yeah, no, I think it's I think the same good idea, but I definitely forget my cup one of the days, and next you know I'd be stuck without it. Uh, yeah, it's probably a good idea, but like I'd probably forget my cup, and, and a lot of people probably forget their cup. But I think it's a good idea. Um, yeah, I think it's a good idea because there's so many students, there'd be such a big effect on the environment with the amount of people that'll be doing it. I think it's definitely a very good ideal to have. I mean, you'd hope that everyone ha- would have a keep cup, um, but obviously um, not everyone does and not everyone's going to remember it. I mean, the thing about using keep cups is that you have to wash them out whenever you're done and not everyone does that and they leave them at home. Um, so I think it's a great idea if everyone were to have keep cup, but that's not realistic. Um, I do think that maybe one day a week could be kind of interesting to do and would encourage people to not forget their keep cups and to all have one, but I don't think it's feasible to do it for seven days straight. Because I know that keep cups can be quite expensive and they do sell them but I know not everyone will want to buy them because of the price. I don't think that getting rid of disposable cups in DCU is a good idea because uh, personally I forget things a lot and not being able to have a drink for the day would become very frustrating if I forgot my cup. Uh, yeah, I think it would be a really good idea because it's like uh, I know that DCU is in a, a vision of uh, plastic free. Uh, with the bottles, so it will be a great idea to continue to pursue this uh, vision by uh, implementing this uh, restriction to cups too, because a lot of people are, b- are drinking coffee 
and it's just for one use and then you throw it away so when you just look around you see a lot of people with just these cups um, I think it would be a good idea because obviously for the environment uh, the keep cups are a better option but then again it could make people buy coffee and disposable cups from outside campus and there'd still be disposable cups in the bins here so maybe if they do it um, gradually rather than all at once it might be better. DCU have already introduced discounts for using keep cups and also have reusable cups available in the canteen. While most students agree it's a good idea to help the environment it appears a lot of them are concerned about being refused coffee if they forget their cups. Okay, so a really interesting initiative there from Bread41. How successful do we think it will be in terms of, obviously they're saying on Mondays at the minute, they're not going to sell takeaway coffee if you don't have a keep cup. Is it going to cost them? I'd really hope for more businesses like this bakery to implement this new change because there's nothing stopping the people who go in and don't have a keep cup and they refuse buying coffee to go into the next place beside the bakery and just get a coffee there. So I would really hope that the initiative is so successful that other bakeries and other businesses decide to take it up as well. Um, That would just be my main concern. There's nothing stopping a person from getting a different coffee somewhere else. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, Like, if that were me, I'd just be like, all right, see you. You don't get my business, you know, kind of way. But actually, I'm a massive advocate for the Keep Cup, so I feel like I would go to Bread 41 now just to be like, ah, I, I like this, so I'll go buy a coffee there. Um, but definitely, I think, it, it. I don't know how realistic it could be to do a seven days a week. I think that's a little bit stretching it over the top because what, and what if you simply just forget your keep cut one day or you're running out the door and you're late or whatever and you just don't grab it and then suddenly they're like, no. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like it's great. It definitely should do maybe ha- half the week, maybe three out, three days, something like that. But I definitely think it's on the right track and it's making people more aware of maybe how often they would use a reusable cup. Because people who would go into that bakery maybe every day and get a coffee are using, uh, like, use once uh, coffee cups. And they might kind of just draw their attention to how much they actually are wasting every single day by buying this and might incentivize them to actually go out and buy themselves a keep cup. I think like a lot of people are definitely trying to make the choice to kind of use more reusable products anyway. I know there's certain supermarkets and they've started to sell meat that you'd get at the butcher counter that you can bring a little lunch box or a little Tupperware container and have the meat put into that as opposed to kind of all these plastic bags being thrown around it. So in that case, I guess you'd be actively choosing to bring your lunch box to the store. So there probably is a case of... Not so much that you like kind of run out the door without it one day, but that it will be kind of part of you to always be thinking that if you're a person that gets coffee out, that you will bring these things. And maybe if you're the person that runs out the door without it that day, well, you can possibly do without it. It's definitely, I think, making these things part of your normal day to day and not making it into like a special thing that you do. Like, I know since the plastic uh, bag levy has come in, people automatically just bring bags with them. Not everyone, obviously, but people just automatically know they have to bring bags with them themselves. And that's kind of become part of people's habits. You know, they don't leave the house going shopping without it because of this extra levy now. So hopefully in time, that will be the same for even reusable water bottles and then also keep cups that this is just becomes a norm and it's not kind of a special thing and you might be looked at a bit strangely for having not having that. So um, I definitely think that the more people who do it, the more it'll become a normalised thing and people won't even think twice about it and therefore will be unlikely to actually forget it in the end because it's just part of their normal routine. 
Do you see other businesses implementing it? I mean, even Bread41 now are getting a huge amount of publicity just from doing it alone that they might get more custom. Do you think other businesses might even try to piggyback off this, even if it's not for the environmental kind of reasons? I think they will as long as they know it's not going to affect their sales. At the end of the day, they're not going to um, introduce a new initiative if it's not going to benefit them in some way. I know it is benefiting the environment, but the end of the day, a business is open to make money. So I think this bakery in Dublin that has started this is a good kind of way and a good demonstration to other businesses that it can work and you won't lose money from it. So yeah, hopefully other businesses do. I'm sure even if even if they aren't doing it for the environmental reasons, like any little helps, you know, whatever, whatever reason makes them feel better about themselves. You know I mean, so even if it is the for services. even if it is for um, the environment or for just because they think, ah, oh, great, we'll get a few extra bob out of this. Any reasons that they are using less waste, I think, is a good reason. Up next, we will be looking at the school crisis in Skerries. Parents have been crying out in anger over the lack of capacity in Skerries for secondary school children. There are currently 66 children on a waiting list for Skerries Community College for the 2020 academic year. This is already over double the number of children who were denied a spot last year. In previous years, surrounding towns would have been able to absorb excess students from Skerries. However, with all of the neighbouring schools now over capacity, parents are worried they will have nowhere to send their children in September. I spoke to local councillor and teacher Shauna O'Ruddig about the issue. Yeah, it's causing huge, huge distress here. So in Scaries, there are 66 kids on the waiting list. Um, and many of those have no place anywhere else because they don't, they're outside the catchment area for the surrounding towns which are full anyway okay and so it means that they literally have nowhere nowhere to go to school in september and what does that Um, leave them with does that mean their parents would need to homeschool them or there's yes that i mean i've had i've had more than six parents worn crying down the phone to me literally going what is going to happen to my child this was never a situation they thought they were ever going to be in like the kids grow up in Scaries, they go to school locally, and it's actually the eldest, if they're the eldest child in their family, that's going against them because it's done on a kind of a waiting system. So if they have a sibling already in the school, they've more of a chance of getting placed. So it's a lot of kind of the, the eldest children of the families that, um, that that's particularly impacting on. Um, but the parents are, I mean, homeschooling is not an option. It's absolutely not. I mean, the basic provision, you would imagine, is a school place. So I know already the Scary Community College is beyond capacity. Um, they're having new classrooms built, but that's just to deal with their current capacity. Okay. They're not, they're not able, they're not in, in a position to take in any new students. And I know the Minister for Education was out here last week. Um, with great fanfare announcing that there's new classrooms, but what they didn't say was that that's for the current intake. It's not to increase capacity in any way. Um, there's a lot of anger, a lot of anger out there. Um, and I know the line is, you know, I know he, he was on News Talk during the week and yeah. it was put to him, like, can you guarantee that children will have a school site in September? And the minister responded saying, well, that's an, an issue for the schools. Okay. The schools are over capacity with waiting lists of, I know in Rush, I think they've 80 
something on the waiting list. Okay. So this is a ticking time bomb. They knew these kids started junior infants eight years ago. Um, and I think the way the population has gone, it's going to hit its peak with the current third class children. Okay. So, you know, even parents who don't have kids going into secondary this year, they are really... And the next three to four that. years, they're extremely worried. They're extremely worried. Um, and I mean, the idea of putting them on a train and sending them into town, you know, that is not... It's, it's just not good enough. So there's going to have to be some kind of emergency some kind of emergency solution to the current children who have no place. And then, I mean, Scary's needs another secondary school, but so do all the towns around North Fingal. Okay. Um, because planning was just allowed to go out of control um, and not without the social infrastructure that's needed. And the chickens are coming home to roost now. And um, last year, from what I understand, or this year, this current year that we're in, there were 30 students who were denied a place in Scary's Community College. So, do you have any idea what happened to those children? They would have just had to go elsewhere. I imagine to Lusk. I know a few kids who went to Lusk and Balbriggan, but those schools are now full. Okay. Um, you know, because there's huge amounts of housing being built in Lusk and Balbriggan. So, schools that would have been able to absorb the excess from areas there now are not in a position to do that. So you have children who can't get a place in Scaries and can't even get on a waiting list in neighbouring towns because they don't fit the criteria. They don't fall within their catchment area. No, like and what have you been able to tell? Have you been able to tell people? Basically, we're just putting pressure every way we can. I mean, I'm on the council. We bring it up every single council meeting. The next council meeting is the 9th of December. It will be brought up again. But. You know, you hear about planning decisions since 2017. The Minister for um, Housing Planning and Local Government, Don Murphy, mm-hmm. took, you know, fast-tracked the process. So it's yes. out of council hands. Okay. So anyone with local knowledge, we're being presented with these new housing developments, but we have absolutely no say in the fact that there's no social infrastructure there for these houses to be built. And for over 100 units, they go straight on board Planola. Um, so it's just causing chaos and it's going to get worse and worse, but there doesn't seem to be any joint thinking. You know, if you're building these houses, these houses are going to have children in them who are going to need education. Um, I know yeah. in 2017, the school was granted planning permission for yeah. a number of new classrooms. Is that the building that's happening right now? Exactly. That's the one. That's to, currently in the school. I actually taught over there. Um, about three years ago, just with the TYs. Okay. And currently there are class classes in kind of storerooms. But this, yeah, those classrooms are literally just for to get get kids out of storerooms and put them actually into classrooms. Okay. Um, and so in terms of like, kind of as a temporary solution, obviously it's not what should happen, but. Like, would there be any way for the board of directors of the school to kind of raise the money for prefabs or yeah. anything just to intake the students? Yeah, yeah. Well, that there were lots of different things discussed at the meeting with the parents. And okay. There's a, a local man, Peter Ellis is his name. He started kind of the petition and he got, you know, we're in con- constant contact, all of us, in terms of what are the solutions. And I know Brendan Ryan has spoken to Joe McHugh in the DAW. And Joe said to him, look, you know, if you have solutions, let me know. 
Okay. It shouldn't really be the way it's Not happened. at all, absolutely. But it is going to be, you know, like the parents were even talking about, you know, the local GAA club is right next door. Other people were saying, could the TYs be moved, you know, out of the school? That's not really practicable. Where you'd even put the prefabs? Because the school is, is you know, there isn't the space. Yeah, on so both particular like, grounds. Like, yeah, even take the car park out and could people park next door? So there's all creative solutions, trying to come up with some kind of creative solution, but it just, to me, it's not being dealt with, with the urgency that it needs to be. With um, the schools, like, obviously you say that, like, to build a new school, that'll be years down the line. Yeah. So what are what are you hoping the government will do right now that they can do right now? Yeah, it's going to have to be temporary accommodation. I don't know okay. if you remember... About eight years ago, there was a similar situation, but in Balbriggan with the primary school. Okay. And basically, you had in September all these little four-year-olds who had nowhere to go, and they ended up building Brackenstown, educate together very, very quickly. Okay. Um, so, you know, it is going to come to that. But this is an issue that, and it's not just parents who, I mean, this is an issue that is making people extremely angry because it's just exposing the lack of forward thinking if it's something that we can't even provide schools what else is going on in the background because this is such an obvious issue and lack of Um, forward thinking by multiple governments i suppose completely multiple governments and i mean i'm a a teacher so i know the stats that we have to send into the department they are well aware of the number of kids like there's six primary schools here and one secondary you know you don't have to be a mathematician And there's loads of new developments have, have been built here. And, you know, those those people don't move into the houses just, you know, as a couple. They move yeah. in with kids and, you know, all the way up to teenagers. What um, for you is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is that they do nothing, that they just sit on their hands and hope that the kids go somewhere else. That's not going to happen and it'll come to August and the children will have nowhere to go to school. And not just in scurries, but in the surrounding towns as well. And then the government will have to act. And, you know, it could be they could miss out on months of education. Yes. Um, But that's, I think, what they're hoping will happen is that they'll just go somewhere else. Okay, so that's all we have time for today. I'm Aoife O'Brien. I'm Jenny Keegan. I'm Grands Rock. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date with all the latest news. And we'll be back here again next Thursday at 6. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your evening.